Hi, this is Josh Turknet, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. Um, I'm going to do something this week that is not something I normally do, and that is repeat an interview that's gone out on the podcast before. Um, and the reason for that is that this is its a really interesting one. It was one of the earliest interviews I did, and it's particularly pertinent for this time of the year, so I thought I'd put it out again for those of you that have missed it, but also for those of you who just might want a refresher. And the reason I'm doing that is a lot of us have New Year's resolutions around practising more, practising better, improving. A lot of us get stuck in a rut and use this time of year as a way of getting out of it. And this interview can help you do just that. Um... I spoke to Josh Turknett, who wrote a book called The Laws of Brain Joe, which is a book about basically how your brain works when you practice music, specifically relating to the banjo, but it's not a book about learning the banjo, it's a book about learning music, or really a book about learning anything. And Josh is just full of insights about really cool stuff that is actionable. It's about how to practice to get your brain to remember stuff. Um, and that sounds quite technical, and it is, but it's also a very, very, very simple book to read and implement stuff from. Like really useful stuff like how long do you need to practice for? How should you practice? What can you practice? Like, this, is, this is gold, essentially. Um, and the reason I got onto this book is that Brian Sutton recommended it to all of his students on ArtistWorks. And I read it, and I loved it, and there's so many lessons in there that I've forgotten since I first read it and I just listened to this interview again the other day just just for myself and I thought you know what I'm going to reshare this with people so I hope you find this useful um, I'll stick some links in the show notes to Josh's stuff so you can go and have a look at his website and various other bits you can go by the book most importantly um, and also listen to Josh's podcast he's got a podcast about how our brains work um, and one of the episodes in particular is about music and that could be fun too but um, this is a really interesting chat. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot from it. Josh is fascinating, but most importantly, this is all stuff that like, relates to how you play and you can take and you can use. It's not some abstract idea of you know, how to play. It's proper advice that is actually actionable and will help you become a better whatever kind of musician you want to be. So if you've heard this before, like listen again, there's gold in here, I tell you, it's good stuff. Um, and if you haven't heard it, I hope you get something from it. Um, but without any further ado, I'm going to let Josh tell you all about it. So my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along today is Josh Turknett. And I've been really looking forward to this chat because the way I kind of found out about Josh was um, his book, The Laws of Brain Joe, The Art and Science of Moulding a Musical Mind, was recommended to me by Brian Sutton. Now that make, makes it sound like me and Brian were sitting around chatting, he, recommended it to all of his students and I happen to be one of them um, but I also saw a subsequent video where he said that he'd bought a copy for Sierra Hull because he thought it was so good and I thought well if these two people are finding this book useful this is something I need to read and I did and I absolutely loved it and I thought it was something that'd be great to share with you guys um, particularly now as we record this we're just heading into Christmas um, which means then we're heading into New Year and New Year is a time when a lot of people make plans to kind of change things, do more of the things they love, uh, make some improvements in their lives. And if you are like me, a musician, every year one of your resolutions has something to do with how often you practice, how much you practice, how much you want to improve, how much you want to play with other people. Um, so I thought it'd be a really cool time to chat to Josh about his book because it's full of great information about about how to practice, um, but not just based on some system he's 
made up that he thought might sell a book, but based on how your brain actually works. There's a lot of science behind this. Um, so I thought it'd be really cool to sort of do it now so we've got a chance to set some some real practical, realistic goals to improve next year. Um, so Josh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I think um, it'd be great just to get a very quick bit of context from you as to why so your, what your background is and how you came to write this book, because it is the fact that it's a book about how to practice musically. And it, I want to sort of emphasize this is not a book about banjo. This is a book about playing any musical instrument. In fact, it's a book about learning anything, really, but specifically sort of related to music in this instance. Um, and I thought it'd be useful for people to understand a little bit of the context and sort of how you how you came to write the book. Yeah, sure. So uh, in some ways, the book was a lifetime in the making because it's it it combines a lot of um uh, ideas and interests that i've had for a very long time um and i won't i'll try not to <laughs> trying to go back just to uh <laughs> the day i was born um but uh but kind of growing up i think uh, if i look back i was kind of i i always loved the learning process um it, back then it was kind of applied to sports although i had an interest in music but it didn't i just sort of didn't have the the means to fully develop that, uh, back then, uh, but I did a little bit of dabbling, but I loved the process of just getting better at things. And even back then I felt like, um, to me, it seemed that how much better I got at something was directly proportional to, to proportional to the amount of effort I put into it. Um, and how, you know, the, the type of effort too. Um, but you know, whether it's sports or music or all sorts of things in, in human life, the, the conventional narrative, at least then, was primarily around innate abilities or talent. Uh, you know, you, you were good at, at baseball because you were born good at baseball or, you know, you, especially around music. You were either musical or you weren't musical. And um, that always kind of bothered me because it didn't seem like that was true. Um, and so that probably, I think, planted a seed early on for what turned into Brain Joe. Um, and as I got older, I got into, um, I had a, did my um, undergraduate degree in neuroscience and then um, went on to medical school, um, trained in neurology. And um, there, my, I had a particular interest in in neuroplasticity or, you know, the science of how the brain changes. And yeah. that kind of gets wrapped up into the ideas, I think, around innate abilities and talents and sort of there's um, the the world of neuroscience for quite some time, especially in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the idea around uh, the brain was that it was pretty fixed um, once we became adults. And I think in some in some ways that fueled the fi fixed mindset or the idea that uh, kind of you had these innate abilities that manifest in childhood. And then, you know, by the time you're grown, that's you have what you have and there's not a lot mm -hmm. you can do about it. And that was essentially overturned um, mid to late 20th century. And now and then there's a whole emerging science around how the brain changes and so forth. Um, so as I started getting into music, I realized that, you know, th the um, this sort of science of how the brain changes had not been really integrated into how people will go about learning music or really in much of education at all, even though the primary purpose of learning music or learning anything is to change the brain. Uh, we have to, you know, we, what we're trying to do is build the neural networks that support the knowledge and skills of whatever it, whatever it is 
we're trying to learn. So that, you know, as I'm sort of doing that in a professional capacity, realizing that these things, um, these insights from neuroscience have direct applicability to learning and learning music. And then one of the great things about music is it's a very feedback rich environment. So you can really mm, test yeah. these sorts of things easily. You, you know, the, the pace of change, especially early on is quick. Um, you get instant feedback about how you're doing, uh, because you can hear it. Um, so it's a really good, uh, way of, um, of testing all of these things and, and getting better about the process of learning. And part of my frustrations as I was trying to learn music. So I started getting really into it um, early on and like, uh, my early twenties, I would say. Mm. And, um, but I, uh, there was plenty of information about what you should learn, but hardly anything about how to learn it or, you know, the, the learning process itself. So, you know, it, it seemed to me there was a need to integrate this, uh, the science of how the brain learns into, uh, into um, instructional methods. And, and like you said, it applies to anything. Music is a great testing ground for it, but this is really, these principles, you know, are the same no matter what it is you're trying to learn. So, you know, it was this fundamental belief that they go, went way back that, you know, our success in learning anything is not about the brain we're born with, but the brain we make through practice. And so, um, that it's, it's more about how we go about learning and that success or failure is driven by, um, driven by our learning process and that people who reach the high levels of expertise, um, don't get there because of natural talent, but because of their very effective learning or practice methods. So we have these two, two streams of, of, um, information that we can, uh, look to one is the science of how the brain changes. The other is studying people who have reached high levels of expertise, see what their processes are. And those areas of overlap where you see commonalities between those two things, the theoretical side of neuroscience, the empirical side of, of people who have learned really well. And those to me are the best candidates for your golden principles about how to learn and finding those golden principles and then building a, an instructional method around it kind of became the founding vision of Brain Joe. And then what I love about the book is that, you know, with all the sort of scientific weight behind it and all the sort of study of process, it it boils down to some proper like practical applicable stuff that you can go and do and see the difference and i think that's that's one of the the brilliant things about it there's so many books you can read and go that was amazing but i've no idea how to apply it <laughs> right but, you know by the time you've read the book it's already told you how to apply it um, and that's right. fantastic i appreciate that yeah the, it was it was important to me it's always been important to be able to not just take and you know a lot of things that are scientifically oriented may focus a lot on the science or the theory. Um, but you still are left kind of, there's a gap between how do I take that and apply that? And that's, that's what I love to do. I mean, that's, I kind of, that's kind of the niche I've fallen into, you know, in my professional life now is, is figuring out how to take those things that are oftentimes walled off in the ivory towers of academia or whatever, Mm. and see and, and apply them to, uh, you know, help people make their lives better in some way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's a lovely um, sort of image as well, this idea that, because I think it's easy for people to believe that some people are just born to, and obviously people are born with talents and with gifts, but they don't, you cannot sustain a career of brilliance based just on that. Um, and, you know, you, when you see somebody doing something amazing, we tend not to go, they must have worked hard. We tend to go, right. 
aren't they gifted? Like it's something that's been given to them and they just sort of wander around showing it off to people. Um, and I think it's I think it's great to have that challenged. It's a bit of a double-edged sword because that puts the responsibility on us to do something. Um, the idea that we all have a brain that can be moulded and trained and shaped and taught to do things means we can't sit around going, well, I just wasn't born that good. It's like, right. well, you know, find those limits. You've got You've got some limits, but you'll never know what they are until you find them. So... Yeah, so it does right. It does put the, so sort of the responsibility back onto us, but um, but you know, and a, and a lot of that comes back to in terms of how, you know how you see that, right? Do you see that as as pressure or opportunity? Um, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> entirely down to mindset. It, it, it does, and and um, and one thing I also is you know try to get people away from is is uh, is you know judging themselves appropriately or or not judging themselves at all if possible, and and um, really just you know we you can look at the gap between you know where you are now and where you want to be as this sort of uh, insurmountable or, or enormous area uh you can see that as a negative or you can see those are s- how many opportunities to make progress and you know enjoy the process of learning and you know it's almost an, you know it, viewed in that way you know music is the gift that keeps on giving because there's no end to it and the, yeah and there's there's a there's a, a, a bit from the book that basically describes um the process is it, it not being about an end goal it being about continuous small improvements and and that's kind of life isn't it if we fixate on i'll be happy when this happens or when that happens or or if you just find processes that make your life incrementally better every day and in, enjoy them sort of running then that's right. that's sort of what happiness is on a day-to-day level really and um, yeah and it, it's it's really liberating and i think that the thing that for me, the two sort of there's two phrases from the book, two sentences that I think just sort of summed it up for me as a as a kind of approach. And one one is that humans get really, really good at stuff through hard work, not through some fortuitous genetic gift of talent. And that's the sort of the basic principle. But what the the practical application is followed up with how you practice matters a whole lot more than how much you practice. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the meat of this conversation, I guess, is it's entirely yeah. down to what you do to train your brain to do the things you want it to do. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. The, um, yeah, you can, you know, it's, it's quality over quantity uh, in many ways. I mean, quantity helps, but it won't, uh, it won't correct for poor quality. And, um, I think the, the thing about the innate talent narrative has, I think has caused us kind of collectively to overlook just how important the process is uh, because you can always say, Oh, if, if it's not successful, well, it wasn't in the cards or whatever, rather than hmm, maybe I should reevaluate how I'm doing this. And um, we haven't used those opportunities to learn how to, how to, um, you know, craft a better process. So what's the, what's the sort of the first, the first place people can generally start to, to get to grips with some of these ideas and to, to sort of understand how they can, take control a little bit yeah so it's a big topic but um i think you know it it's in the in the early stages of learning um especially music the it, it can be, it can be easy to be overwhelmed by um what where to go and what to do and it can also be tempting tempting to try to do too much right you you go into it uh because you've you know you've seen you you you're a fan of player x or whatever or a certain style of music and you see that in its fully realized form you know you see a player who's has you know how many hours of of not only practice but probably really good practice uh, yeah, yeah. in their past and and so 
you know, it's fuel for motivation, but if that's the yardstick, then that can be, that can be, you know, demoralizing, uh, pretty quickly. So, you know, part of it, I think early on is about, um, break, making sure you're breaking down the process into kind of the smallest learnable chunks. Um, uh, especially as you're sort of building those foundational skills. And I think that's it, for begin for an early player, probably the most important concept is, mm. you know, you're, you're building this sort of foundation of, of skills. And in the brain, what you're doing is building motor programs that control the movements of your limbs that will allow you to play, play your instrument. And, um, going there's there's some perils if we're trying to do too much too soon um and one of those would be trying to sort of learn multiple different techniques at the same time um and ideally you know if you're wanting to learn you know how to how to pick a string cleanly you want to learn that kind of on its own right you don't want to learn that as you're trying to learn a chord, as you're trying to learn this song, um, you kind of want to build those things in in a um, on their own first, so that they're nice, high quality. The problem that if you don't um, doing multiple things at once makes it harder to provide the brain with the kind of in, the quality input that you want, and and so it's like it's sort of like the garbage in, garbage out, you know, uh, idea. Yeah. Um, the the brain will build neural networks based on the input you give it. So the in especially early on with those technical skills, um, wanting to provide it with good quality inputs, and so um, taking things, you know, um, create or using the sort of the smallest learnable thing you can. And then not being afraid to play things slow and easy um, from the start, you know, doing too much, going too fast, all of these things, you know, our brain's going to adapt to what we give it. So if we if we sort of play stuff that's beyond us too fast and we're sloppy and whatever, it will build sloppy neural networks. And it's a lot, as anybody knows, who's, you know, tried to break a bad habit, it's much harder to break them um, than it is to form them right in the first, yeah, in the yeah. first place. So I think the first, the thing to think about early on is, you know, how do I form good playing habits? Um, and the keys there is start simple, um, simple and slow. Um, and, you know, going slow in the beginning is how you go fast later on. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that can be a, a challenge for people, particularly in the world of bluegrass, which has sort of got a reputation for being fast, intricate music. To right. Try to start playing fast, intricate music. And, you know, it's it, not only is that really, really hard to do, but also you sacrifice all sorts of things like tone and quality of note production. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's something that, um, I mean, I think lots of musicians deal with in some form, but it's, you can only play a piece as well as you can play the, the, the trickiest bit of that piece. Uh, and, um, yeah. You know, one of the, the lessons I applied first from your book was just the idea of that smallest chunk of, you know, mm-hmm. I was learning a tune called Daily's Reel, and I could play most of it pretty quickly, and one bit of it I could just get through quite slowly. But I was still practicing the whole piece from the beginning. <laughs> right. And then I just went, so I just sat for, you know, 20 minutes, several times over the course of a week, playing about six notes. That was it. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, playing this little bit, gradually driving everybody in the house mad, and by the end of the week, it was there. And I could have carried on playing the whole tune forever. And, right. you know, I, I might have dragged that worst bit up by a few BPM, but I never would right. have got it to the, the level of the rest of it. And that technique in particular that you talk about is, is just is one really good illustration of why your process matters so much. Like you said, you could, you could have spent your practice time 
practicing that whole ta- song every time, right? So say it takes you five minutes to go through the song and say the little piece that you're that's tripping you up. You got all of it right, but just that 10 seconds worth, right? Yeah, yeah. And you spend, <laughs> you spend five minutes, you know, each time to, just to practice that 10 seconds when you can just pull out that 10 seconds and think about how much, you know, faster you're able to learn the piece just by focusing on what, what you need to. Um, I refer to that particular technique as the labyrinth technique um, because it was, I was, um, and that, that idea came to me, I was, if you're familiar with the game Labyrinth, where it's it, it, people have seen it, it's got the wooden board and you move it around, you move a little marble yeah, around yeah. Um, and try and get it through a maze. I was playing it with my son. Uh, he was like seven or eight at the time, and we were trying to see who could get it the furthest. And so I was, I was practicing on my own time, and there was this one little spot in the maze that was like, you know, way, to, way, way f- away from the start line. Uh, and I was putting my marble at the start and getting to that spot and then trying to get through it. And I was kept putting back, I was like, wait a second, why don't I just put the marble right at the spot and work through the little movements I need to get through that, that. And I was like, and that's the same thing with music. It's like, don't, if you, you know, if you have a little troublesome section in a, in a piece or a song, work on that specifically. Right. Um, and in, in both cases, um, your, you know, the learning will uh, accelerate you know, dramatically uh, just by making that little switch. And it seems it's one of those things that seems so obvious in retrospect. You're like, duh, why didn't I think of that? But you don't do it. And, and I'm still guilty sometimes of, of, of not thinking to do it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 these are I mean, I, part of the reason I write these things down is to remind myself of what's most important. And it's, it's that also that. um that sort of idea, and it's the same principle, I guess, but I, I sort of realised that I can play the A section of most fiddle tunes much better than I can play the B section because mm. you start with the A section. And so yep. I like now I'll sometimes start a tune and I'll start with the B section and then go into it. And it's it makes so much sense when you when you see it from that angle. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and then also sometimes practicing like starting with the fourth measure. See if you can do that. You know, is is your is the song like stored sequentially in your mind? So where you have to start from the beginning, like your ABCs, or can you go straight to a section and and play it? It's another you know challenge, but it's but how in a demonstration that how you learn really shapes you know what you end up having. Yeah, and it leads into that idea um, that of sort of the practical sense of how how you get that feedback and how you understand if you've internalized something enough and i'm going to pronounce this word wrong um automaticity this idea that um i loved it that it's a very simple idea that if you can do something while you're doing something else it means that you're able to do it with a level of autopilot and there's something else that you describe is something that musicians do all the time anyway which is playing along to a metronome mm-hmm. and it, it's it's so simple yeah. So, and I think probably another um, thing for people early on to uh, think about, and it, I think there's a tendency when people are starting out not to practice along with any type of rhythm keeping device or timekeeping device. And we think of the metronome or any kind of timekeeper as a way of practicing rhythm, but it's also a way of testing for automaticity and automaticity, meaning you can carry out some type of activity, some type of motor program with your limbs or whatever, while your conscious mind is focused on something else. Um, and really what we want to do is take all of the technical components of playing and automate them, right? So, you know, when you're playing with others or when you're performing, you want your conscious mind not to be able to have to focus on any of the movements of your hand. Um, And as you're learning, you know, uh, we talked about breaking things into the smallest chunk. One way to know 
it, that you've have that chunk, you know, that you've, you've successfully learned it is if you're able to play it along with some kind of external timekeeping device, because mm. what you have to do in that scenario is your conscious mind has to pay attention to the, to the clicks or the drum beat or whatever, while your hands are doing something else. So, you know, if you're not able to keep up, it could mean that you need to work on your rhythm, but it also could mean that those movements just aren't automated yet. Um, and so you can't, your conscious mind can't focus on both the movements you're making and the listening to the thing that's, that's keeping time. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, um, super important thing to, to, to use early on. I mean, uh, um, you know, I think if you're, if you're talking about good new year's resolutions, always practicing with some kind of typing timekeeping device is a really good one. Cause it's something that I, I know a lot of people avoid. And it's one of those things that if you start out not using it all and then try to go back, it makes it even harder. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I noticed this in my playing, just doing that, you sort of get double feedback. You get the, the feedback on whether you've managed to automate the process or not, but you also get feedback on which of the bits of the tune you struggle with most because mm-hmm. they're the bits where you're struggling to keep up. And I, you know, I hear my son play the piano and he, he doesn't like to practice with a metronome because he likes to be able to slow down for the tricky bits. Right. And you, and yep. you can't do that with a metronome. And it's, right. Yeah. And you may not realize you're doing that until you put that track on and hear it. Yeah. It's, it's like truth serum. You'll find out. And then, and then you can actually, I mean, it's a, a good process is to take something you think, you know, play it along with the backing track. And then, and then you find little bits where you're slowing down or not able to keep up. And then those are the ones that then go back, use a labyrinth technique to, to, um, and just loop those, you know, with, uh, with a backing track. And that's a really effective way to learn, much more effective way to learn than, than not using one at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, and I think it is. You sort of talked earlier about um, the the sort of speed of learning, particularly in the early bit of learning an instrument. You get a lot of progress really quickly, and but the, that that sort of sense of frustration. And I think you put it really sort of clearly. Actually, that most people give up because they stop getting better. They don't mm-hmm. give up because they have no desire to play the instrument anymore. They don't give up because you know they. they and it may be that they've got time constraints and they don't have as much time to play as they used to, but. That means if you're the kind of player that gets your guitar out and sits and noodles around the things you know for an hour and then puts it away again, you're not right. going to get any better. And then if you're that time you've got drops to 10, 15 minutes a day, you're never going to improve. And so I think that's a really sort of clear, clear call is that constant improvement is one of the ways to keep yourself engaged and motivated. And mm-hmm. and, that, and that can be incremental, small improvement. It's not so it's not earth shattering stuff every week. It's just right. bits of being a little bit better than you were last week. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was one of the things I wrote about in the book was that, you know, I had my own personal revelation when I realized that I enjoyed playing as much now as I did just in the very beginning. Like it wasn't, it wasn't reaching some particular level or being able to play some particular song. Um, it was simply just the process of getting, of learning and, and, Mm -hmm. and getting better and making some kind of incremental process uh, of progress. So on on the one and, and part of that is to kind of reframe help people reframe from thinking if i make it here one day then i'll be satisfied with my you playing because that's not going to happen <laughs> there will you will once you get there you're going to be oh there's more to, there's plenty more to learn um but by the same token it means that your enjoyment enjoyment is not going to change it, it you know it's it's here and now right um and it's really about uh progress and then and then like you said finding the most the smallest amount of progress it really doesn't matter um when you make that leap from something you couldn't do to something you can it's just as enjoyable um and it's like that the whole way it doesn't really matter how sort of the absolute level of difficulty of whatever it is it's more about 
that you can do something today that you couldn't do yesterday. That yeah, yeah. Just addictive. And then what I love about it is not only do you get that constant bit of progress, or if you don't, you're never far from being able to put get the process back on the tracks and do it. But you mm-hmm. also do get those moments where, or I, I certainly do, where I'm sitting there and it suddenly feels like I've had a breakthrough, even though all I've been doing is a little bit of work every day. I suddenly sit there sort of maybe recording a backing track for the podcast and I'm just sort of watching my hands go and thinking I'm not I'm not really thinking about this this is just coming out and I'm listening to the quality of it rather than hoping I get to the end without getting it wrong and yeah you know that's you do still get you, you don't lose those moments of breakthrough just because it's incremental right yeah and those are those are I love those those are the best is when you when you you feel like someone else has taken over (laughs) but yeah i mean and it's you know people describe that as a a talk about you know i think um some people may be familiar with the concept of flow um but it's you know this 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 state where you're engaged in some kind of your your focus is uh, is um and you know is um intent on something and you're sort of doing it at a at a at a level and your conscious mind is sort of not in the process and it feels amazing. Um, and really the root of that is, is the automaticity is being able to automate all these, all these things. And then you're just kind of sitting back and it's, it almost feels like you're not even there. You're not even doing it, but it's a, I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's so much fun. And like you said, you can keep, keep doing it because there's always more that you can do. And so you can keep having that experience over and over again, but, um, it's part of the fun, I think. Yeah, I was I was in um, I was at a pub the other week playing at a session, and the session had finished, and people were packing their instruments away, and I was sat chatting to one guy, and I was just playing a fiddle tune as we were talking, kind of, and somebody said, "How, how can you do that and talk at the same time?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, practice." Basically, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I've played this tune enough that I don't have to think yeah. about it. Right, it's right. Just, the, you know. the part of my brain playing this tune is that the part that talks to you. So. <laughs> exactly. And if the, if the part of my brain that had to focus really hard on playing that tune had to do that, then I wouldn't make right. any sense when I talk to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think what you just said there about um, about the, the sort of the idea that if you if you even if you reach the point where you go, I'm going to be happy when I get to there. There's always mm-hmm. still somewhere else, and it's that. I think it's another of the the lovely ideas from the book is that it's just a journey and it's, mm-hmm. we're all uh, different. And it's a theme that's really emerged as I've talked to musicians on this podcast. Are you sort of, it's, and it, it, it's easy. And I've said this before, but it's easy to get the idea that, you know, the best players in the world, like Brian Sutton, for example, mm-hmm. have arrived and right. are just are enjoying the view, but they're not, mm-hmm. they're just going great. Here we are. All right. What's next. And there's always some, all you all the, the really driven musicians you speak to only ever see what's next. They're not looking back and going, "What can I do?" They're going, "What? What can't I do? What's next?" That's right. Yeah, and uh, and that's the is like that's why music is so wonderful. If you had, if you actually had arrived, you'd get bored. Like we we love novelty and we love progress. And if you yeah. felt if you got to a point where you're like, "There's nothing left," well, you'd move on to something else. And um, the fact that music, ne- you, there's no end to it, um, is you know part of the appeal and. So it's it's great to rec- the sooner you recognize that the better because it sort of takes away a lot of the frustrations that you might other- otherwise have if you have that idea in mind. And I think the other the other thing that goes along with that maybe that that sort of goes hand in hand with hand with it a bit is you talk about um, children learning to walk in the book and how yeah. you know they don't fall over and get disheartened and decide they're never going to walk again they just get up have another go fall over again get up have another go. but as adults we sort of lose the the willingness to fall over. So I don't think, I think there's a thing that we have as adults that kids don't have and kids aren't embarrassed because there's mm-hmm. no guilt or shame in getting something wrong. 
Um, and, yeah. we, and we feel that more acutely as we get older and it's hard to, to dislodge that. But actually, the, you know, the idea that there is no failure, just feedback right. is, is incredibly powerful and, and yet difficult to fully commit to for people who've, yeah. you know. Yeah, the older, like, right, exactly. Like we're, you know, kids are designed to be learning machines. So, you know, to learn you fail and that's how you get, like you said, if there's no failure, only feedback, you have to, you have to get feedback to know how you're doing. And, uh, and so when you make a mistake, that's just an opportunity to learn. And, you know, our brains know that. Um, But we do get, you know, the older we get, the more judgmental we get, we seem to be on ourselves. I think the other thing um, that happens, which I, talked about um is that the older we get we also become accustomed to feeling masterful in more areas of our life um whereas mm-hmm. you know as kids we're learning everything we don't have experts at anything yet um so when you're used to kind of feeling expert you know at your work or whatever or it you know get if you can get through your entire day on autopilot and then you know you encounter some endeavor where you feel like a total beginner you know, you may resist that because, you know, you're used to, you're not used to that anymore. Whereas as a child, yeah. you're used to that all the time. Um, but, you know, so trying to reframe that experience is, is part of the, the mindsets, you know, that, that are necessary to be successful. Um, and, and reframing how you think about, um, you know, about, about failure, um, no failure, only feedback. The other concept that I like is going back to sort of children, childhood development and, um, is the idea of the the timeline of mastery, or and meaning that um, there's no there's no good bad you know whatever it's just where are you on the timeline right mm-hmm. and just like any child um, you know the, a, a two year old's going to be at a different place than a four year old and learning to talk right but they're you know you wouldn't expect them to be at the same place and you know that if they're getting continue to work on it they're going to keep getting uh, keep uh, making progress so it's not really about you know, what particular level you are only, where are you now? And kind of what's the next step to move you on the timeline. And we're, we're all just at different spots on the timeline, you know? Oh yeah. And I think, um, I think that's like in my experience anyway, something that like you see, you accept in loads of other areas of life. You know, I have have a friend who's one of the most intelligent, eloquent, you know, able to express themselves people that I know, but apparently didn't start talking until he was, you know, nearly five. You wouldn't know it. And right. And, you know, the, that sense that you should be at a certain point at a certain stage in your life, it's like that they're just averages. And, right. And, and it sort of it brings me on to that, the idea you talk about, um, you know, there is this common idea about 10,000 hours of something to master it. Um, and on, on one hand, that's a lot of time. But, mm-hmm. the, but, but the sort of point you make is that 10,000 hours of what? You know, if it's 10,000 hours of just playing whiskey before breakfast again, Right, like you, the ten thousand hours of that isn't going to get you anywhere beyond being able to play whiskey for breakfast. Really, 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 really <laughs> right. Well. But but if there's things you do that are sort of meaningful, you can not only shave down those numbers of hours, but but see the progress happen. And um, and I think one of the key questions that I found really interesting in the book, and that I presume most people listening to this are going to be interested in, is the idea of how much we should actually be practicing because mm-hmm. you listen to. You know, some musicians who practice three, four, five hours a day, and, and that's great. But I don't have that time available right. to me. But I don't want that to be the reason that I don't want to sit there going, well, I haven't got four hours to practice, so I can't get any better, because I know that's not true. Um, right. And I know you've got some very definite ideas on this. Yeah, so uh, so the good news is, so you're, you're, you're right, it's easy to see, oh, hear a story about 
player X practicing eight hours a day and thinking, well, that's what it takes. Forget it. Um, but it's important not to, uh, not to mistake, like seeing that for that being the way it has to be. All right. Just because someone practices that much doesn't mean you need to practice that much to get there. Um, so it's really, it's more of a question of, you know, what is, like I said, it all goes back to, this is ultimately about changing our brain. So, you know, what is necessary to do that? And so the, the good news there is that, um, you, your initial efforts provide almost provide a disproportionate amount of your returns for any practice session. Um, so there are limits to, if we go back to thinking about, this is about changing the brain. Uh, so if I want, my, my goal of my practice is, is to, to, to signal my brain that I want it to change to support learning this new thing that I'm working on. Um, there is a limit to how much it can actually do in the span of the day. It is a mm-hmm. biological organ. It can't just, you know, there's, there's only so much reorganization it can do. It takes energy. Um, and so what we want to, what we want to accomplish is, send it this, uh, the, the signal needed to actually do that. So how much time is necessary for that? Um, and then at what point are we sort of facing diminishing returns? And is there actually a point where we might, act, might be doing too much or we might undermine hmm. um, what, we're, what we're wanting to do? Um, so, and there's, you know, would love to have even more research than we have on this topic. Um, but from based on what we know, the you can stimulate um, the brain to change in about 20 to 25 minutes of practice of practice time or, you know, in, in experimental protocols of, of various things that have been done to um, stimulate neuroplasticity, you know, that looks to be what's necessary. And that also dovetails with research, research on attention where the amount of time we can generally pay, pay close attention to something in, in, without fatiguing and without degrading the quality of our practice or whatever is about 20 to 25 minutes. Um, so for, uh, I think that is a great target for most everybody. Um, mm. particularly when we're talking about, um, you know, stuff where we're trying to stimulate the brain to do something that it can't do today, you know, t- today to do it tomorrow. Right. Um, and a lot of that has to do with more a lot of the technical components of playing, um, and the reason the attention piece comes is important is that um, the way you know our brain doesn't doesn't change in response to everything, right? You can't remember what you had for breakfast four days ago, or you know whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. These are these are it's it's and that's a feature, not a bug. You you don't want to remember everything. You don't want your brain to waste energy and resources you know, remembering things that are, that are, that are trivial. Um, so most of the stuff it takes in, you know, from our, from our sensory um, organs, it forgets on purpose. So we have to have some mechanism for saying, don't forget this thing. This thing's important. I want you to change and, 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 and be better at this tomorrow. And attention is the way we do that. Um, when we play, when we pay close attention to something, that gives our brain the signal that, hey, this, this thing is important. Um, we're going to devote energy tonight while you're sleeping to make a, you know, to try to make a network to make, get us a little bit better at this tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to be able to pay focused attention on something to make that, to stimulate it to change. And then like we talked about earlier, it will change based on the inputs you give it. So you want to give it high quality inputs. So if your attention is starting to fade, if those inputs are no longer, you know, as high quality, that's the time to stop. Mm. So that's where the 20 to 25 minute kind of uh, guideline comes from. And then, you know, if you want, I, I, I'm, 
um, if we're talking sort of about the technical components of playing and, and um, I, I'm skeptical that doing much beyond that um, would be beneficial um, just because of the limitations of biology and how much we can change. Um, there's also a phenomenon known as, known as motor interference, whether, where if you practice something and then you practice something else within four hours of that, um, both of those things will be degraded. So your performance on either one will be worse than if you hadn't done the second one. Mm. Um, so there's, so you, you could potentially undermine your, you know, progress either by going too long or by, by doing, you know, doing another session in, in close, uh, you know, close proximity. Um, so that's where, you know, I've meant, I've recommended before, if you're going to do another practice session in a day, give yourself at least four hours or, or more, you know, particularly if it's, you know, these technical components. Now, the, one of the thing that's, that's a, sort of a caveat to think about is that there's more to playing than just learning ha- the movements that we need to make, right? There's yeah, yeah, sure. uh, the other category, you know, there's you know, training your ear, right? And there's learning all how music works, you know, what people would call music theory, um, which tend to get neglected. Um, but one of the, um, one of the uh, principles of, the, of interference is that um, it probably matters how much the networks overlap, so if you're learning one particular thing and it's totally discrete from another, it's like lot less likely for there to be interference. So, you know, rather than say practice for 20 to 25 minutes on learning this passage in this, you know, in this particular piece that you're struggling with and then don't do anything else, rather you could say do that and then maybe do something to train your ear or do something, you know, to, mm. to learn more about theory that you don't know or whatever. So it's, uh, you know, understanding the kind of the type of learning also matters in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, how you're uh, partitioning your practice time. And again, I think it's one of those things that like, th- these aren't concepts we don't understand. You know, if you've been to the gym, you need right. to let your body, because it, this is the thing that I think I, I found really interesting um, is the idea that you don't, the, you're not getting better while you're practicing. Mm-hmm. You're telling your brain how to change while you're practicing. And then after you practice your brain, and it's the same with your muscles when you exercise, you tear yeah. your muscles ever so slightly. And as they, as they mend themselves, they get stronger. Um, and, and exactly that point, I guess, is that, you know, you wouldn't physically expect that if going to the gym for half an hour every day was good, that going to the gym for three hours every day right. would, would be proportionally better for you. And I, a fine example of that is, you know, I've been, been running for years to keep fit and I decided to run a marathon a few years ago and what i learned was that i'm capable of doing it but it's not very good for me you're right you know if the only if the only goal for that is a distance goal then that's a challenge and i accepted the challenge and i enjoyed it it was great my body did not turn around and go thanks for doing that that was brilliant my body body turned around and went what are you doing like you don't need to do that to keep fit yeah that's not you know and it's a different kind of challenge and it's you know but but the principle is, is definitely there that more of something is not always better than the right amount of something yeah, we're very inclined to think more is more, and and it's not definitely not always true. And and you're right, the the analogy to sort of muscular fitness or whatever is is a really good one. It's the same kind of idea. You wouldn't, you know, you spending a twenty minutes or thirty minutes in the gym to sing the signal is great. If you spend three hours doing the same thing, you're probably going to undermine yourself because you have no ability to recover from what you just did. You know, so 
Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different domains in biology or where you're learning that less is more, right. And, and, um, and how to get away, you know, what is sort of the minimum effective dose and how can you do it the most efficiently? Yeah. And there's a, there's a couple of things you touched on there, actually, the, both the, so the concept of, um, giving your, your brain time to rest so it can build these new pathways, Mm-hmm. Um, but also the the sort of the stuff you can practice that isn't just the mechanical move, and some of it doesn't even require an instrument being in front of you. And so mm-hmm. it lead, leads me on to the idea of visualization, um, which is something you talk about a lot in the book. And I think and this is something that um, when Brian Sutton was recommending this book, he, he'd sort of said that he'd use these visualization techniques to learn the music for the new Bella Fleck tour that he's playing mm-hmm. on. And this is some complicated music, right? Sure, like, complicated music, and it's it really <laughs> helped. And um, and like first off, I think the word visualization has been unhelpfully co-opted in some circles <laughs> around around personal development because it's sort of on mm-hmm. some sort of crass level, visualization means if you want a really nice car, just think about yourself having a nice car and eventually you'll get it. <laughs> right. And, and A, that doesn't work. Um, but B, I think it's a bit of a simplification of what visualization is. And and I mean, I'll let you explain it because you'll explain it better than I do. But it's, it's much more about... Um, actually mentally going through a process rather than just painting a nice picture and looking at it right yeah exactly so if you if you use the term visualization uh, there's no telling what what somebody's gonna you know think of uh <laughs> because of the, the different ways of it to use but in this particular context um you know what, what and it's like you said it's a really effective tool um uh, but what we're talking about is a first person perspective of playing of, in the, you know, if you're, if you're a musician and using visualization, a first person perspective of playing your instrument. Um, and I usually have people as an exercise to kind of get the idea or know if they're doing it right is to either imagine you know, throwing a ball with your non-dominant hand. Um, and just sort of not, not imagine watching yourself, but actually doing that, making, making the throw first, doing it with your dominant hand and doing it with your non-dominant or try imagining signing your name with your dominant versus your non-dominant. And if you do that, and if you feel the awkwardness of doing it with your non-dominant hand, um, then you've got the right idea. Then you're, you're, you're doing the first person perspective. Yeah. And what and studies, um, on this show that, you know, a that you're you, that when, if you image your brain doing this, the same networks that are op, that are uh, lighting up that are um, with increased blood flow when you're actually doing the thing are lighting up as well when you're visualizing the thing. Um, and even more remarkable is that if you if you um, if it's done in some kind of learning paradigm, so there was a, there was one that was a, a piano a simple little piano piece taught to novice piano players, and one group visualized, and one group just played the piece, and one group didn't practice at all, and the group that visualized over the over the intervening period of time uh, at a certain you know interval did just as well as the group that practiced the actual piece. So not only does visualization um, you know, activate the same areas of the brain as doing the thing, um, but it also can stimulate neuroplasticity in the same way. So you can just think about something and cause the brain to change, which is just amazing. <laughs> I still think it's yeah. amazing. And I think, well, it's incredible, isn't it? It's the, that idea that if you think there's a target behind you, that's just as frightening, whether there is or there isn't. Right. Yeah, your your exactly. brain treats it as the same thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a super useful, um, technique, uh, a, you know, it's a way to practice when you don't have an instrument with you. Um, 
another thing that's great about it is that one of the issues that uh, you know banjo players um, have is in trying to get away from written notation or tab or something like that. Mm. And you know, with tab, you can play by sort of taking what you see on the page and translate that to movement of your hands, right? Um, if you are visualizing and you're not using anything written, what you're having to do is take the uh, the your um, imagination of the actual music and map that onto movements of the hand. Mm. And that's those are those are the kinds of networks. Those networks that map sounds onto movements is the kind of thing you're act, you're wanting to build. Um, so it's a way of working on that particular skill or building that particular skill of sort of ear development in a way that physical practice can't actually do, um, or unless you're discre- you know, deliberately doing it. So it's also a really good way to sort of build your ear and build your ability to connect sounds that you're hearing in your mind to movements that you're making of your limbs. Um, and one thing I mentioned in the book is a nice kind of habit to get into is if there's something that you were working on during the day is as you're going to bed at night, you know, if there was like a, you know, a six note passage or whatever mm. that you rehearse multiple times, go visualize that thing at night. And just like the example of, you know, throwing with your non-dominant hand or signing your name, if you, if you'll feel, if, if it's something that feels it's not, you know, you don't have it down yet, you'll feel that same level of awkwardness as you're visualizing it. Um, and uh, so you can in, in practice it in the exact same way. And you can, just like you do in real life, slow it down in your mind, loop it over, you know. Um, but one nice thing about doing it right before bed is the um, there's evidence that when the brain's sort of deciding what to, to change for, what memories to store at nighttime, which is part of the, you know, part of the reason why we sleep it tends to prioritize things that happened closer to the sleep interval. So it's a way of signaling, Hey, this is the particular, this thing I really want you to work on tonight. Um, so, and it may help you fall asleep. Well, yeah. And as a, as a double whammy, it sort of, you know, helps distract you from lying there thinking about not being asleep yet. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's great. Yeah. And it is. And also that idea, you know, with just the, the, uh, and in, in all respects, you know, our approach to sort of mental, health in all its facets is behind our approach to physical health but they seem so aligned Mm. in many ways and the idea that you know if you want to improve an instrument one thing that you're going to need is sleep so your brain can mend all those things and build all the new pathways and you know in the way that your body needs sleep your brain needs sleep every bit is you know the the more the more research is done the more sleep seems to be a really key yeah part part of life and I think that speaks to another really important thing that's pro- that's often overlooked is the fact that if you know this is all about changing our brain, our brain is a biological system, right? So mm. its health is going to be it's going to be a primary driver of the results that we get and how effective we are. And you know, sleep is a great example of that because we know that there that sleep is essential for learning. That's when. You know, whether it's your muscles or your brain, that's when we repair and recover. You know, we don't we don't learn when we're practicing. We learn uh, when we're sleeping, when it, that's the time the brain devotes resources towards building new stuff. Um, so if you're not getting it or if you're not getting certain um, stages of sleep, um, then you may not, you know, that could undermine your whole, uh, you know, all your efforts. So being mindful of the fact that we're ultimately, you know, um, uh, requiring something of a, of a biological system here 
that it, that his health matters. So attending to things like making sure we're getting adequate sleep, um, you know, sleep, movement, nutrition, probably being the three big things that drive the health of the brain. But those things will are, are going to influence this process probably um, significantly and more than we pro- than, than most people appreciate. And it's easy to you know we because all of this all of our learning sort of happens in an abstract sp- space. We we tend to forget that it's all driven by a biological system. Yeah, I and mean, even simple things like you know life is incredibly busy now, and but I just find that um, we've we, we've lost that time that we used to just sit and look out the window. And for me, mm. it's like in the same way that when you're practicing an instrument, it's not when your brain's actually making the changes. When you're reading a book or I don't know taking some information, and it's not when you're processing it. That happens when you're going for a walk or doing the dishes or driving the car or just sitting and looking out the window, and and that's when you know your brain puts everything where it needs to go so you can use it effectively yeah the that's that's a really good point um yeah we are uh bi- seem, seemingly busier than ever and we don't we tend we've tended to um undervalue the importance of sleep and undervalue the importance of date of, of downtime you know mm. whether it's going for a walk whether it's you know e- you know i know that all of my best ideas and insights come when i'm not thinking about something you know when i'm on a walk when i'm in the shower when i'm on a drive when i'm daydreaming out you know that's when your brain is assimilating information and and we it needs those downtimes right we can't always be bombarding it but yeah in this day and age um that's become more of an more of an issue than ever i was talking to my son about it the other day um and sort of explained to him i was at i was at university we had two recording studios that you could book 24 hours a day and you know you Mm -hmm. could record through the night and we often did but every Monday morning for three hours, they were both offline while the technicians went in and cleaned things and sorted the cables out and, you know, sorted out the tape heads. And, and we, yeah. were, we were livid about that because we're like, that's three hours we can't, you know, <laughs> those, stu- those studios. And they just said to us, look, if we don't do this every week, you're not going to get to use them at all because they'll just fall apart. And, and it is that sort of the idea of scheduled downtime, you know, mm-hmm. scheduled maintenance and just looking after the things themselves that. But I think people. Yeah. Have, I think maybe the last couple of years have hopefully taught people a bit more about that and re- remind us right. that, that we need that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, you know, I, I, I bet most people listening have had the experience. And we've kind of talked touched about it earlier, where you know you haven't played for a little bit or you've slept, you know, and you come back and it's some it's easier than it was the day before, right? And yeah, yeah. and you you know you, it's a powerful illustration that something happened while you weren't doing anything. And so the, the idea that things can, you know, things can happen while you're not directly working on them. I mean, much of, most of our brain is like that, right? Most of our brain, you know, what, what it's doing, um, it, it, it's learning when we're not deliberately, you know, sitting down to learn something. It's always learning. It's always running in the background. So maybe, yeah, maybe we should be thinking about, um, about these, a bit like writing a piece of music, like you write the piece of music and the act's enjoyable, but then when the royalties come in later down, you're, you're not still writing the music or performing it. The royalties <laughs> that's right. In. It's like, you know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Progress is royalties. <laughs> yep, right. <laughs> progress is royalties. That's like, good. Yep, it's a right. payoff for the effort that you put in before. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so the thing, I think, like maybe we sort of started off talking about this being a Christmas new year kind of resolution thing. And I, I wonder if they'll like the one thing that I took away from the book. I mean, I took so many things away it would take more than an hour for us to talk about all of them, but um, it's just that idea about like, and I can't remember exactly how you phrase it now, but it's not, it's don't practice harder, practice 
better or smart. It was smarter, smarter, wasn't it? Don't practice harder, practice smarter. And I think that would be a great New Year's resolution for anybody learning and doing anything. But, you know, don't just just to be mindful about the time you spend on it, particularly if you're short on time to spend on it. You know, yeah. pick quality time, do do the stuff, buy the book, apply the lessons. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I started learning the banjo when I was in my medical internship. And, uh, that was a time I was working 90 hours a week. And that was, it was only because that was, ma- had just been mandated. Otherwise it'd been even more than that. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I had, you know, very little practice time, right. I'd, I had to figure out how to do this with very little. So if I wasn't practicing smart, I wasn't going to, to, to get very far. Um, and, but it, it's become abundantly clear that quality, you know, is so important and you can, make so much more progress, um, by practicing smarter than you probably think is possible. Um, like I said, if you, if you can actually commit to 20 to 25 minutes of good quality practice, most days, you're going to be blown away by where you are in two or three years, you know? Um, so yeah, committing So, and, and I think it ultimately gets back to, um, recognizing or acknowledging that, it ultimately is about the process, right? Mm. If you, if you, if you, if you understand that really what matters, it's not, you know, not the brain you have, not, not whatever innate abilities you were, you were born with, but rather how you actually go about, you know, practicing something. Um, and then, and then understanding, you know, the, the golden principles there, which is kind of the mission of, of brain Joe in the, to begin with, um, that you know, focusing on on understanding those principles probably is more important than anything else you could do, um, and then and then figuring out how you're going to implement those in a way that makes sense for you. Um, I think that would be that would be a great a great way to start the new year. Yeah, and you know, the, the, there's so many simple lessons in the book that, despite the sort of length of research and complexity of science behind it, they're they're, they're not. Um, there's there's nothing that somebody could read the book you could take six six things away from it implement those and and you would be an infinitely better player in six months time yeah and there's so much practical stuff there it's, it's great i loved it oh, great that's so, great to hear i'll obviously i'll stick um, a link in the show notes to to the book and is there where's the best place for me to send people to get more information on brain Jam? Um, you can send them to uh, the Brain Joe Academy. It's brainjoe.academy. I'm in the process of moving everything there. Um, so, <laughs> but that's 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 the best place for like central headquarters. Great, brilliant. I'll stick some some stuff in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to cover while we're here? Um, I don't think so. That was, that was good. I, I appreciate. Um, it's it's always so nice to be interviewed by someone who's like read stuff and those are great questions i just <laughs> it's it made for such a better interview and <laughs> i mean this is happened. a this is um this is something i do in addition to my day job and in addition to finding time to to play music as well so all the yeah. time i spend podcasting is time not spent playing the guitar so i'm, yeah. I'm not going to interview anybody if i haven't read their book and loved it <laughs> <laughs> that's good so you're a guitarist <laughs> yeah guitar and mandolin but like most okay. i think lockdown brought me back to guitar there's something about a bigger sound that fills a room that just yeah you know felt yeah and coming back it felt a bit like coming home picking up a guitar again i can't can't quite yeah, explain yeah. it but yeah it's just that's been what i've been doing for the past couple of years very cool where are you over in the uk i live in london you're london okay yeah, gotcha. yeah. cool brilliant well i can't thank you enough this has been such an enjoyable conversation and i think there's there's stuff in here that that everybody can can take away and run with all right i appreciate it i really appreciate you having me on
Thanks a lot, Josh. All right. Take care. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.